0: Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire, Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. In this episode, I'm joined by Nick Colt. Nick serves as a captain with the Long Beach, California Fire Department. Prior to entering the professional fire service, Nick was a captain in the United States Marine Corps. Nick is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis and was a collegiate All-American for the Midshipman Rugby Team. He also serves as a tactical leadership advisor for Leadership Under Fire. Nick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And I have to mention that I purposefully kept your bio short because I really want to maximize the time we have together, and I'm eager to give you enough time to share your thoughts and experiences. So I'm just going to dive right into the first question. Okay. You began your professional career as an officer in the United States Marine Corps, and I'd like to unpack your service as a leader of Marines, given that your military service started at the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. I'd like to start there. Okay. So what drew you to the U.S. Naval Academy? And when did you decide that you wanted to pursue the U.S. Marine Corps?
1: Sure. So initially what drew me to the Naval Academy, I was, I think, a sophomore in high school. And a good friend of mine that I, I played high school football with and was also on the um, track and field team with had opted to do a program at the Naval Academy called a summer seminar. And uh, at the time, I believe the program was about a week, week and a half long. And it was almost like summer camp uh, <laughs> with a, a slightly military flavor to it. And he went to that and attended it as, I believe, a, a junior or senior in high school and came back and, and uh, really spoke highly of it. It kind of planted the initial seed in me that a career in military service was something that I'd be interested in, as well as Annapolis might be the place that I might want to start pursuing that. And then kind of as time rolled along and, and high school sort of, the, the, my clock on my high school career sort of ticked away, mm-hmm. I was able to do a, uh, a visit to Annapolis. And if you've ever been there and if you haven't been, it's it's an absolutely phenomenal place to visit. But um, we visited on one of those days where it was just, you know, Sailboats floating across the bay, and sunlight coming down from the clouds, and it was like, man, this is this looks like a pretty good place to me.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, did you have a family history of anybody serving in the military? Like, was that part of your upbringing?
1: Um, maybe a small part. My both grandfathers on my my mom's and dad's side um, had served in the army um, during World War II. Neither one of them spoke about it a whole lot, and I, I think both of them were sort of at the the cusp of the age cutoff where they were very young when they enlisted and, you know, went overseas sort of towards the tail end of World War II. And so it was always kind of in the back of my mind that they had served in the military, but never actively promoted it as a, a path for me.
0: Got it. So, Nick, while at the Naval Academy, you played rugby for the midshipmen right. and you earned All-American honors during your junior year. Did you play rugby prior to college?
1: No. I don't know if I had even really formally heard of rugby before going to college. And uh, it's one of those things where I I had a a pretty, I guess, diverse athletic upbringing. My dad was really passionate about basketball. And so I played basketball, football, track, and a little bit of baseball growing up. But I was probably an average athlete at all of those things um, to the point where my senior year, my dad sort of sat me down and said, hey, we may need to think about maybe focusing on one sport if we want to look at getting you a scholarship. And uh, I I essentially told him no because I I just enjoyed doing too much of everything. And so when I got to the Naval Academy, I found out, you know, knowing that I was a a pretty average football player to begin with, I I found out that I was even less good than I might have hoped, especially competing with sort of the big boys at that level. And um, although I did all right there, my freshman year trying to play football, I I sort of opted out of it just because it didn't seem like like the best fit for me. A friend of mine who had played defensive end with me had decided to leave the team earlier and joined the rugby team and sort of talked my ear off about it. And uh, it turned out to be, uh, you know, even to this point in my life with the exception of marrying my wife and um, the birth of my kids has been really uh, playing rugby at the Naval Academy, I would say the most formative experience in my life.
0: It's wildly impressive that you earned All-American honors in rugby, having not played it prior to college. Can you unpack some of the things that made it such an, a formative experience to you? <laughs> sure.
1: Well, so I'll stop you real quick, Patty. It's like um, uh, to, to to be an All-American in rugby, at least at the time, was certainly not the the equivalent to being an All-American basketball player, football player. Um, it's It's a little bit of a an unknown sport, uh, at least in the States, as far as that's concerned. So while it's impressive to say all American and while I definitely felt honored to, to hold that title and to be able to do something like that, I would say it's, it's considerably maybe less competitive to earn that, that title. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay it too much, but at the same time you think about, wow, this guy's only played for two years and he's already all American. Um, it makes it seem like I'm, I'm some tremendous athlete. and I can assure you that wasn't necessarily the case. What I will say is that rugby is an absolutely amazing sport. And when you see it play, played well or when you, you're able to play it well, um, it's almost kind of like sorcery. You feel like you can run as fast as a deer and um, like everything just kind of clicks. And uh, it's it's really an exceptional experience. And um, I, I just enjoyed it thoroughly. And really all my best friends in life to this point are still guys that I played rugby with.
0: Excellent. Which aspects of rugby do you think prepared you for the service and leadership in the Marines? Because I think there are parallels there.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I didn't know much about rugby until I started playing it. And I think a lot of the reasons that it clicked so much with me when I started playing are a lot of the reasons that the Marine Corps clicked with me or even the fire service clicks with me. Um, there's a certain, I, I don't if you want to compare it to American football, for instance, um, everybody has sort of a very specific role and a very specific function. There are a lot of set plays. Um, and with rugby, it's it's just much more dynamic. Everybody's expected to play offense and defense. Everybody runs for the full 80 minutes. And it's it's a game where you really sort of sacrifice yourself for the benefit of your team and your teammates. It's also one where... There are opportunities for some set plays here and there and some some orchestrated or pre-rehearsed things that go on. But the majority of the game, I would say, is really like sort of snap judgment and time critical decision making mm-hmm. um, that comes with just a lot of time training, not only individually, but especially as a team and, and has has stuff click. So I, I think some of the stuff that, that clicked with me as far as rugby um, was the same that, that clicked for me in the Marine Corps just as far as that time-critical decision-making. Everything's sort of done in the flow of the moment. It's done with an opposing force or an opposing will, that being the other team. And uh, you're really trying to get out ahead of that and make decisions in an effective manner that you'll really impose your will onto the, the opponent as opposed to them doing that to you. I guess probably the most significant element that touched upon me with playing rugby, we had a, a phrase called, with you. And if you've ever seen rugby played, unlike American football, the only way you can advance the ball is either by kicking it or by running it. Um, there's no one that that blocks ahead of you. And with that concept in mind, if you elect to carry the ball, and like I told you, everybody's everybody's designated to carry the ball at one point or another because everybody runs, um, you're sort of alone and unafraid at the the front end of this, this attack. And uh, that can be a pretty... I guess, intimidating and a a pretty, I don't know, a pretty violent feeling. Um, But then the phrase that that we utilized on our team was with you. And that was the phrase that you utilized to let your brother know that you're right there at his back. And we would always say with you, with you, as in, hey, I understand you're going forward. You're you're carrying the ball towards our enemy, but I'm right here with you to support you, to clean up the mess after you've done all the, the dirty work and to protect you and to take care of you. And that's a concept that um, really carried forward, I, I think, with me in the Marines and, and hopefully the rest of my life as well. But uh, there's an element of sort of selflessness and, and self-sacrifice that it, it really touches upon, uh, again, I think the reasons that, that rugby appeals to me as such a team sport in the first place.
0: That's excellent. I hadn't heard that before. Thank you for sharing it. And I, I do think that's the perfect segue into my next question. So you were commissioned as a Marine Second Lieutenant upon your graduation from the U.S. Naval Academy, and we've had a few graduates of the basic school on the podcast in the past. Sure. But I'm curious to know what you think is unique or significant about the training that all Marine Second Lieutenants receive at Quantico. And maybe at this point you can define it for our listeners, too.
1: Sure. So TBS or the basic school, as it's called, is um, a course that all Marine Corps officers attend. Interestingly, um, it's it's not necessarily the first training or the first indoctrination that Marine officers go through. In my case, that, that sort of indoctrination period, if you will, uh, was conducted at the Naval Academy, but only a small percentage of Marine Corps officers come from the Naval Academy. Um, a much larger percentage come from ROTC programs um, from uh, regular schools and universities. Quite a few are what we in the, uh, back in the day called uh, Mustang officers who served as enlisted personnel and then were commissioned as officers. And so the basic school does a number of things. The most notable and, and the one the Marine Corps advertises is that it treats every officer the same and trains every officer to be a leader of a rifle platoon. And so at, at the time, the, the phrase was um, every Marine a rifleman. And I say rifleman generically, you know, meaning mm-hmm. rifleman or or woman in this case. But basically, the concept is that regardless of your occupational specialty, whether you're a pilot or a cook or an engineer uh, or an infantryman, that you're able to operate in the capacity of basic infantry. And the concept of that is that there really is no front line nowadays. We have, as a Marine Corps and as a military in general, have made a career of. Exploiting enemies' weaknesses and essentially mm-hmm. taking the fight to places where our enemies are critically vulnerable. Realizing that a lot of those times, those are in places where you know it might be a supply line or it might be, you know, someone with an occupational specialty that isn't necessarily holding a rifle might not be their their primary duty. Um, and so the Marine Corps hedges their bets and trains every member of the Marine Corps uh, to be a rifleman. And so that that's sort of the advertised goal of TBS. Mm -hmm. I would say though that for me, and and while that training is exceptional and and super important, I would say that another really interesting facet of TBS, especially coming from the Naval Academy, is that I had this really sort of extended four year indoctrination period at the Naval Academy. Um and now we're being introduced, you know, to really a much larger percentage of Marine officers who are coming from all over the country and and really a, a few members from all over the world. Um, but you really get to kind of in some ways test your medal against these folks, but also just to see the glue that holds us together and sort of the common bond that we all have. And you're doing this all in a you know kind of a competitive environment too, because if you haven't already been slated as a pilot, um you're really you're you're kind of fighting for the occupational specialty that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you have a, a really limited time window, about six months, in which to sort of prove yourself and and get marks that are high enough in order to achieve whatever your occupational specialty is. So, you know, TBS is designed, again, to to produce um, Marine Corps rifle officers that are can take charge of a platoon, whether it's a platoon of motor transport officers or, or cooks or whatever, and to utilize them as a rifle platoon. But, you know, the secondary purpose is that now we all know who one another are. We're on a level playing field. And uh, it's, it's sort of the common ground. And then everyone gets sent to the four corners of the globe and uh, is expected to carry out that mission of the Marine Corps.
0: And I can understand why your athletic background would have prepared you well for that. But was there anything else that you think helped you? You used the word competitive there, obviously. So anything else in in your experience that helped you go into TBS with a, a competitive advantage, you think?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the indoctrination at the Naval Academy I had was a, a fairly competitive advantage. A, a lot of folks come from, you know, like I said, an ROTC program where they're mm-hmm. you know, they they get in their uniform once a week and, and go to classes and, and do their military training, but it was really something that we lived, lived ate and breathed for the four years that we were at the Naval Academy. And it allowed me to I think understand that some of the the more harsh elements of, of the basic school were just an indoctrination period and allowed me to focus on the really critical task items that, that were required of me, not only to get the the grades that I wanted in order to get the occupational specialty that I desired, but also to really focus on who I wanted to be as a leader going forward and, and having enlisted personnel um, that I was going to be assigned to to work for. And uh, that was really the most exciting part of everything.
0: You mentioned the occupational specialty that you wanted in. You're touching on your combat engineer position, correct?
1: That's right, yeah.
0: So upon completion of the basic school, you were assigned to the engineer officer MOS and completed additional training in North Carolina before heading to Camp Pendleton, California, to assume command of your first platoon with the first combat engineer battalion. That's right. So what is it like assuming command of a platoon of 40 Marines after having spent five years preparing for the task, all while being a 23-year-old man and leading a unit of Marines, most of whom are not much younger than yourself and maybe some older?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's pretty crazy when you think about it, right? Um, it is. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a, it's a really unique experience. and. I showed up at Camp Pendleton not really knowing what to expect and you're in your, your dress alpha uniform. And so you stick out like a sore thumb. Literally everybody else is running around in camouflage utilities. Some of them, even with their faces painted. And uh, you feel like you just walked off the boat into a foreign land. And meanwhile, you know, someone hands you, you know, your uniform and says, Hey, you're in charge of these guys who you've never met before go out and do good things. And you're sort of like, uh, yeah, you kind of trained me for this, but who, who are these guys again? And uh, it, it's a, I mean, it, it is an honor and an absolute privilege to to be given that larger responsibility. I will say this, the when I took charge of my first platoon, regardless of the amount of training that you do, whether that's at TBS, engineer school, the Naval Academy, a lot of that is really notional. And you do a lot of peer leadership but you can only simulate those situations so much. Um, And when you actually step into that role, it's sort of make it or break it time, and and you really have to step up and sort of see what you're made of. And I was very fortunate to be placed in, not only in the company of great Marines, um, who I had the honor of working for, but also in the company of great senior enlisted uh, advisors. And I'll touch on that a little bit more later, but you know, um, I, I, I listen to the podcast and I, I subscribe to Jim McNamara's Senior Man Journal, and Jim often touches on the role of the senior man and just why it's so important in the fire service. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same really holds true in the Marine Corps in a lot of ways. You know, you mentioned stepping into a platoon of you know of folks who are by and large, they're like 18, 19, 20 years old. And uh, again, myself, not much older than that. And I had the really good fortune of um, working for a couple of guys, um, both who were gunnery sergeants at the time and then subsequently promoted after that. Um, one by the name of Toby Boyce and the other by the name of Dan Fleming. Mm-hmm. Um, but those those two names are names that really stand out in my my Marine Corps career. They were both really senior guys and had a ton of not only, I guess, knowledge in their MOS and their occupational specialty, mm-hmm. but just a ton of field knowledge as well. Just what you might call street smarts or that intangible of just having a bunch of time under their belt and me coming in as you know a very junior member of the organization truly my first day in the organization minus my training um and them with you know upwards of 15 20 years of experience and they could have very easily looked at the situation of saying hey i'm i'm working for this this kind of young snot-nosed punk like what does he know that's able to you know really impact how I'm supposed to do my job. And to the benefit of of both of those men and and, um, men and women across the Marine Corps and the fire service, I think a lot of those folks, rather than looking at it from that perspective, they look at it from a perspective where the concept is more of one of partnership. Right. Hey, this, this person has a lot to offer and hopefully I have a lot to offer them. And they, they really cultivate that relationship and they offer their experience and um, their technical expertise and their street smarts and their know-how and sort of you know really operate in a mentorship capacity even while not necessarily being the person holding the highest rank in that that platoon company battalion whatever the case may be Um, and so I was really fortunate to have great relationships with with some of my senior senior advisors and um, yeah really hold those guys in high regard to this day
0: Two things before we move forward, and I agree with everything you just said and value it, but I want to also highlight a little bit more about like the benefits of youth, because sure. I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so many of those men and women who are protecting our freedoms are quite young, who are, yes. and there's just something about that time, that lack of experience that gives you maybe a little bit more bravado. <laughs>
1: Sure. Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: That combined together, I think, equals something very powerful.
1: Yeah. And and you're absolutely right. And so I I showed up kind of, you know, pardon the expression, but really not knowing my ass from a hole in the ground. And uh, you've got all these young Marines who look at you. And at the time, you know, yeah, granted, I'm 22, 23 years old, but these guys are 18, 19. And so... Even being 23, that age gap looks like a lot, I think, especially when you're a young kid from the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, looking at, at this guy who shows up and, uh, yeah, I've got a year of training where maybe this guy doesn't have any. Yeah, so there, there are definitely certain elements that I think, number one, you, being closer in age maybe allows me to connect um, mm-hmm. with guys that are, that are younger and, and sort of have a leadership role on a more person to person basis and, and I can connect with it more easily, but yeah, number two, there's enough separation there. And I, I think there is enough training there where, especially a lot of the really younger guys look to you and say, wow, this guy is really sort of, he, he's, he's got a shit in one sack. Meanwhile, I'm looking around like, do you guys know what you're doing? Cause I don't necessarily <laughs> always know what I'm doing. Um, and that's where that, again, that senior enlisted really steps in and I think provides guidance to all of us. But At the time that I joined the Marine Corps, I believe 49% uh, of the entire Marine Corps were Lance Corporal or below, which is an E3 or below. Mm -hmm. So the average age I've got to imagine of a Lance Corporal is probably about 19, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And if you're thinking about this, this is one of the most accomplished fighting forces in the world. And we're going literally to impose our will on foreign nations with a bunch of kids just out of high school. And that's, that's absolutely phenomenal to me. And I think it speaks really highly of not only the, the tenacity and the will of us as an American people and, and those young folks that do sign up to serve their country, um, but also of the relationships that those, those more senior members can forge um, with the younger ones to provide leadership to what is by and large a very young force um, going over and, and doing great things overseas.
0: Yeah, that absolutely solidifies the line of thinking that I, I had there. And before we move on, I wanted to ask you to describe the role of a combat engineer for our listeners. I believe there are four tenants.
1: Sure. So um, as a combat engineer in the Marine Corps, we provide four major things. Mobility and counter mobility are probably the two sort of bread and butter that that um, my platoon utilized over my, the course of my career. Um, really, mobility is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's facilitating the movement of our forces, typically in a combat situation or in the assault. And that involves everything um, from removing obstacles explosively to breaching doors in like an urban warfare environment. And then counter-mobility is exactly the opposite, right? It's, it's inhibiting the enemy's ability to move freely and, and uh, enforce their will on us. And that involves everything from putting man-made obstacles in place you know, minefields, you name it, just essentially hampering an enemy's mobility um, and, and making them only mobile in a way that you want them to be. The third is survivability, which is essentially hardening our own positions, um, developing things like bunkers. In Iraq, we developed a lot of vehicle checkpoints. And then the last is general engineering. We didn't have a huge general engineering capacity just because that's something that requires a ton of manpower and usually a lot of equipment um, and it involves. Everything from making roads, bridges, to actually throwing up buildings. So our capacity was, was primarily the mobility, counter-mobility, uh, and some of the survivability stuff.
0: Got it. Thank you for that. I wanted yeah. to flush that out before we move forward, just to emphasize some things later on in the timeline. Yeah. So I should mention that you were a platoon commander on 9 2001 Do you mind sharing your memories of that day?
1: No, not at all. I know everybody's kind of got their individual story of where they were that day. And uh, I had actually arrived at my battalion and there wasn't a combat engineer platoon available for me to to, uh, to take over. So the first role that I served was actually the platoon commander of our our motor transport platoon. And um, I was sort of just biding my time until one of those, those combat engineer spots became available for me. In the meantime, we would um, go out and PT, do our physical training every morning and Um, there were certain mornings where, you know, rather than just go, um, run ourselves into the dirt, we'd play basketball and and we played basketball on this one particular morning. And I remember coming back and everybody was kind of getting cleaned up and the TV was on in the background and we saw the exact same thing that everybody else saw on the television and we're, we're pretty floored. And, um, I remember thinking that, you know, I, I had signed up in a time of of relative peace, um, comparatively, um, for our nation. And this, to me, aside from the the grim tragedy of everything that was occurring, was also a bit of a wake-up as far as um, my realization that it was no longer a peacetime military that I was serving in. I had no, at the time, I had no concept of who perpetrated the attacks. I had no concept of what that meant for me personally, other than just the feeling that we were now at war. Our country was at war and I had signed up in a fighting force as a warrior to to do the will of my country. And it was really interesting over the next few months to see how that
0: played out. Exactly. And I'm wondering, were you able to make peace with that so quickly in real time or is it in hindsight, you're looking back and you realize you know, I had made a definitive decision, or were you just mo- going through the motions? I have to yeah, know. I'm sorry. Sure,
1: No, not at all. Uh, well, and, and making peace with it is something that I'm still, I, honestly, I think I'm working on, Patty, and I, I yeah. reflect on it quite a bit. And um, yeah, that's that's a tough question. And And certainly, I was not in a position then, especially as a, a very young man to, I think, maybe think as philosophically about the the situation as I am maybe nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um and, and again, I had no idea what capacity we'd be utilized in. I didn't know who we were at war with. And and so I saw it and a lot of it I, I saw I saw the tragedy. I, I cried and I also saw red. And there was there's a lot of anger there, as I think there was for uh, a lot of America. And I remember thinking that yeah, I'm I'm sort of the hammer that the United States drops in the face of its enemies in order to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And I, I, again, I didn't know what capacity that was going to be in as far as making peace with, with that. um, I'm still sort of coming to terms with how I personally was utilized, how my platoon company battalion was utilized um, in the course of, you know, operation Iraqi freedom. And yeah, I'm, I still think a lot about that and, and, still have you know questions doubts thoughts about you know our reasons for going our reasons for staying and yeah I, I do square a lot of that away with myself and I'm happy to talk about more of that too if you'd like
0: I want to speak to you more about that but I want to press pause on it for just a second sure. and to move forward on the timeline to 2002 okay and thank you for sharing that so far Sure So in 2002, your unit was conducting explosives training on a range in Camp Pendleton, California, and you were seriously injured when one of the primers detonated in your hands. And anyone who is in the military or first responder community is aware of the blast effects of an explosive device, and you were holding the device in your hand when it detonated. And I have to say, it strikes me as a miracle that you were not killed what was the extent of your injuries and what were the medical and operational repercussions? Sure.
1: Um, So even to backtrack a little bit, so operationally, um, we're now at a point where, you know, we're a year removed from 9-11, even a little bit further. And we sort of started to see the handwriting on the wall as far as our deployment to Iraq. And we had done a lot of very specific training as far as urban combat scenarios are concerned. And when I spoke to you earlier about some of the functions that we serve as combat engineers, mobility is really one of the primary ones. Mm-hmm. And so we were conducting a lot of explosive breaching in the format of um, like that urban assault that we were talking about, and that those um, military operations in urban terrain. Mm-hmm. And so what we had done was we had taken a bunch of doors from an old, you know, kind of a dilapidated barracks that was being torn down, and we repurposed them to provide some pretty realistic live fire training for our Marines. And that live fire training involved using small amounts of demolition in order to effectively breach a door with an explosive charge, but be able to stand close enough to it that you could prosecute an attack forward into that room and then clear the room effectively after you've done that. And so I guess I was very fortunate that the amount of explosive I was holding in my hand was a pretty small one. As far as the training was concerned. Again, we were, we were doing some, some live urban breaching type, type training. And uh, yeah, I was, you know, we talked about the Swiss cheese um, model of accidents and it was probably one of these things where all the holes in the Swiss cheese lined up mm-hmm. and there were probably 20 different holes. And if any, one of those holes had been blocked, the accident wouldn't have happened where I, I got injured. But the extent of my injury was that um, yes, I was holding onto this explosive charge as it detonated. It, ripped off all the tips of my fingers on my left hand Mm. with the exception of my pinky finger. Although I still have really good function of of my entire left hand. Um, And then on my right hand, it removed my pinky and ring finger, the majority of my index finger. And I would say about half of my thumb um, leaving, I guess um, my middle finger, which has a pretty extensive skin graft on it. And then just left some also some pretty significant scarring, But, really fortunate to have that middle finger. And then also that, that thumb, which even though it's not a full thumb is really, I mean, and and this has been explained to me by doctors, but it's about 60% of the articulation and function of, uh, of a hand. So yeah, really fortunate to have the amount of function that I had. And and like you said, yeah, very fortunate that, that I wasn't, you know, more gravely injured or, or that man, thankfully none of my Marines were injured during the blast as well.
0: Nick, it seems highly unlikely to me that the U.S. Marines would allow you to continue to serve in an operational capacity given this injury, but they did. And I have to ask why.
1: Sure. That's a really good question. I think probably for a couple of reasons. I, I think first and foremost, I wanted to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I expressed that to the medical review board that convened to determine whether or not I would be allowed to. I was really fortunate to have a, a, a great orthopedic surgeon in charge of this board. And the first question he asked me was, well, hey, do you want to stick around? And I said, yes. And truthfully, I think that influenced his decision to allow me to stay. He told me, yeah, a lot of folks that are in your position would probably elect to have this be the end of their career and and move on and do something else. I think part of the reason I elected to stay is that, you know, ever since 9-11, Again, we had sort of seen the, the handwriting on the wall, and we knew we were going to be employed in the service of our nation. And it's, it's hard to say it because combat is, is not a pretty thing, and it's not, you, you never wish to be shooting at someone or to be shot at, but at the same time, it's a validation of why you serve and all the training that you do. And if you go back to that concept of, of with you, my concept was that I wanted to be with the members of my platoon and to, to be with them and to support them and to do the things that I needed to do to fight by their side. And I was injured at a time and in a place where our deployment was imminent, and my platoon actually ended up deploying to Iraq in 2003 without me just because of the extent of my injuries. Um, and that was, that was a, a really bitter pill for me to swallow. It was really difficult to realize that a training accident had prevented me from essentially providing for the safety and combat effectiveness of the Marines that I was in charge of serving at really the most critical time of their careers. Mm -hmm. And uh, what made that even more difficult was that some of the responsibility for that injury lay with me. And I I had a really difficult time of letting that go and saying, hey, this is going to be the end of my career. And I, I, tried to express that as best I could to this, this medical review board. And I think they got the message um, pretty clearly. And the, the particular individual, this, this orthopedic surgeon who led the board told me, hey, if you, can, if you can perform the basic functions that a Marine is expected to perform, shoot a rifle, uh, do pull-ups, you know, do all the things that are expected of, of a, a Marine Corps officer, then I see no reason why you can't be allowed to stay. Um, and so I approached my, my rehabilitation efforts with that in mind and, and not knowing whether or not, you know, I'd, I'd be going to combat or even be given command of another platoon, but with, with that kind of as my
0: hope. You touched on the rehabilitation process, but can you describe it a bit more? Cause I, I heard you trained so hard. You could do a pull-up using one finger. How did you adapt to this injury and and this new norm?
1: It was difficult. I, I think the most difficult adaptation was honestly the the mental rigor of it. I was, I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't down in the dumps and kind of had a bit of a pity party for myself mm-hmm. um, when when things first happened. Especially because I felt, you know, um, to a large degree responsible for the injuries that I had occurred, incurred. You know, some of the uh, the mistakes that were made on this live fire range were mistakes that either I sh- I should have seen coming or maybe contributed to. But as, as far as the physical rehabilitation was concerned, I approached it from the standpoint of knowing what my benchmarks were. I knew that I had to do pull-ups. I knew that I had to be able to shoot a rifle. One of the many reasons that I'm so grateful that that middle finger on my right hand was still intact because I shoot with my right hand. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't exactly do a pull-up with one finger. I do a pull-up <laughs> kind of with one finger on one hand. The other hand is doing a lot of the work. Uh but, yeah, it was, I think my, my athletic background helped me prepare for that. It was, it was a lot of just really desensitizing all those, those really raw nerve endings to a lot of the more harsh realities of just touch in the everyday world. And uh, it, was, it was kind of a long comeback. It took me probably about four or five months before I was either, you know, able to sort of shake someone's hand and, and uh, not sort of feel the after effects of, uh, of the injury.
0: So you endure and you rise above this injury. And in 2004, your unit deployed in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Your unit participated in the Al-Fajr operation during November 2004. I have to emphasize that this is one of the deadliest months for Marines during the five-year campaign in Iraq. Can you offer some context or insight into this chapter of the Iraq War?
1: Yes, yeah, so it was really interesting. I felt like I was missing out a lot by not being deployed with my entire battalion in 2003. And while I, I still feel some of the pangs of, of, you know, maybe some guilt or some, you know, missing out of not going on that deployment, uh, in actuality, the Marines from my de- battalion were probably deployed for, I think, maybe two or three months. And I don't, again, this is not to belittle any of the casualties that we incurred at that point, but, you know, I think really anticipating that that would kind of be the the closing of that chapter, um, whereas really the, the most critical and, and most deadly months in Iraq were, were yet to come, as we saw in 2004. And even before I arrived in country, which was probably about June of 2004, yeah, the, the really critical times in, in Fallujah and, and Ramadi and all those kinds of places that, that we read about in our history books now. But the the ability of the enemy to impose their will on us was outpacing our ability to deal with the threat of IEDs at the time, um, improvised explosive devices, to the point where um, a lot of the explosive ordnance disposal, who are a very rare commodity in the Marine Corps and in the Navy, uh, they're being tasked on a daily basis. They weren't getting any sleep um, and they weren't, they were only accomplishing a small bite of their mission. Um, and because we have training in uh, explosives and and ordnance, a large part of their mission fell to us. And so we were dealing with a lot of the improvised explosive threat in both Fallujah later on in November, as you've mentioned, as well as uh, Najaf and Diwaniya in the summer and, and early fall of that year, which was also a very major offensive. Um, and so, yeah, just a, a really a really violent time, um, time period in Iraq and a time where a lot of our tactics and techniques were developing at a very rapid pace in order to keep pace um, with the developments that the enemy was throwing at us. And just, yeah, very deadly time and, and very um, very critical time for our forces on the ground there.
0: Nick, who were some of the leaders who had an impact on your development as a combat leader? You mentioned a couple earlier, but I wanted to ask this question again in case there was anybody else you wanted to include.
1: Yeah, so again, previously I mentioned Toby Boyce and um, Dan Fleming, and both of those guys were um, platoon sergeants of mine, and I had the good fortune of working for for each of those gentlemen, and they each taught me something a little bit different. I I think Toby, aside from being one of the greatest human beings that I've ever known, um, was also just an exceptional communicator and really understood the role of fostering that relationship between the junior officer and the senior enlisted that I've taught you about before. And um, it's amazing how well Marines respond to that. It's like they can feel it. It's almost like a, a kid that feels um, safe and secure in the fact that his parents have a good relationship and are on the same page with everything from discipline to a bedtime schedule. And, and Toby taught me a ton of stuff uh, in that regard. Dan Fleming, um, also a consummate professional, Truly a jack of all trades and a master of all trades, um, and kind of cut, I think, from a lot of the same cloth that that Jim McNamara is. Um, and listening to a lot of his podcasts I and mean, reading the Senior Man Journal, Dan is a, a a bit of a Renaissance man. He's a man who has a capability across a number of fields and capacities. Um, he was actually a draftsman, which seems like a very very narrowly focused um, field, but. Um, in combat was really the most capable combat engineer I'd ever met without actually having the MOS of a combat engineer. Other combat leaders, you know, I, I know I've, I've drawn some parallels um, between rugby and, and combat, and I know that the parallels are a bit, uh, I don't know, possibly a bit cliche, because you talk about it, and it's like, well, it's sport, but at the end of the day, a lot of times especially with rugby and, and the social act, aspect that takes place where so you're, you're drinking beers with the guy that you're just whose face you were pounding in, you know 10 seconds prior um after the game is over but a lot of the lessons that i was taught um on the rugby pitch were lessons that carried over you know to my time in combat and again with, with sort of that concept of of that that sacrifice um for your brother and really all my my brothers on the, the naval academy rugby field were were guys that you know not only did I look up to, especially a lot of the more senior guys, the uh, guys like um, Don Fall, Jeff Himmel, Jake Harriman, um, there's so many more that I could mention, um, but also the guys that I played with, Kyle Shoup, Tim Myers, uh, Roy Nicka, Mike Slatt, um, Pat Marvel. All these guys are, are guys that I, I still try and keep in good touch with if I can, um, but they're all guys who have gone on to great careers in the military, um, careers in civilian life, you know, lives with their families and have been really exceptional human beings, um, moving forward. And they've, they've all impacted the way I, I view myself as a combat leader and as a fire department leader, specifically as a combat leader, though, those guys embody a concept of selflessness and a concept of sacrifice, which I think is really important. I think for a leader, especially in a combat scenario where you're asking so much, of those whom you serve. You, you you require and you ask so much of them that really you have to ask even more of yourself. And, and those are guys who all embody that ethic.
0: On that note, what are some leadership principles that you adopted during your time in Iraq that's proven equally relevant in your other endeavors?
1: So again, I, I'm going to go back to that concept of selflessness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think approaching your work with a level of humility. Um, and, and Jim McNamara talks about this as well, right? It doesn't matter how much of the senior man you are, how how professional and how exceptional you are at your job, you also don't you don't take any privilege from that. and you still consider it your role to be that mentor to be the guy down in the trenches and to expect the same of yourself um, on an everyday basis. And so that's it's a principle that I, I think and hope, has served me well in the fire service. And I think it's uh, it's an approach, again, that's important, you know, regardless of your rank or your role uh, at the firehouse.
0: Awesome. Simple but transferable. And that brings me to November 22nd, 2004, when your unit took enemy fire and you were struck by a round from an enemy AK-47. Can you tell me more about that event?
1: Yeah, so we had... Um we had conducted the assault um, into the city of Fallujah, and this was the second assault. The previous assault had taken place in the spring, at which point Marines were told, hey, um, after gaining a bunch of ground at um, a, a tremendous cost uh, to life and the morale of the units on the ground, um, were told essentially to pull out of Fallujah in order to allow what was essentially a political solution known as the Fallujah Brigade, um, which was an attempt to allow local forces to essentially police themselves. We know in hindsight that it was a a flawed concept that was a a bit corrupted by um, some folks that did not have um, the best intent of either their own people or the US military in mind. And uh, eventually, again, we had to um, prosecute another assault on Fallujah in November. My platoon was responsible for the combat breach into the city. Um, And so we were really kind of that, I think almost like in rugby, we were sort of that ball carrier right at the very front, expecting everybody else to be sort of at our backs, and and they were. We assaulted from the north end of the city uh, to the south and really cleared kind of door-to-door and would occasionally bypass either enemy strong points or just in order to maintain momentum in the assault, uh, we'd move forward. Um, And that happened early November uh, of that year. Again, fast forward to the end of November, and we were essentially going door-to-door and kind of mopping up Uh, mopping up some strong areas, doing daily patrols, removing improvised explosive devices. And we ran into a contingent of enemy forces that had been bypassed previously. And yeah, in in an exchange of gunfire, I was shot uh, essentially through the abdomen and uh, was, was really fortunate to survive that event as well.
0: So what were the extent of those injuries?
1: The round from an AK-47 struck me um, kind of in the upper right hip, and I was really fortunate that it, it missed my femur. Um, it traveled through through my pelvis and exited sort of like upper left butt cheek area and uh, took some some pretty good chunks of me with it. It removed a, a large piece of my descending colon and rectum, along with uh, some, some pretty critical bleeding and, and nerve damage coming from. Uh, my sacrum which is you know sort of that that back sort of bony plate um, right above kind of where your butt bone sits and a lot of your your nerves and and vasculature extend off of that
0: do you remember the event and obviously you know then there were pieces in the timeline where you were obviously cared for under fire and then medevaced so what do you remember about that
1: yeah, I remember the event really clearly. Um, I had broken my platoon into two separate elements um, in order to try and cover ground a little bit faster. And kind of the sister element of our platoon had flushed some enemy out of a, a neighboring house while we were on the street. And um, it was it was all coordinated. But, you know, in the exchange of, of fire, I was struck. And I remember being struck and kind of falling to the ground face first. And uh, just remembering thinking, man, I really hope my legs still work. And I kind of you know, I'm, I'm lying in the prone position on my chest and sort of kicked my, my legs up at both knees and just thought, oh, thank God both my legs still work. Um, and then remember two of my Marines helping me sort of stumble to my feet and hoist them kind of up under, under my armpits and feeling the sensation of just a, a pretty massive amount of blood. Um, I, I felt it almost like water just kind of run right down the, the leg of my, my pants and uh, immediately fill up my boot. And uh, I went from feeling like fairly confident that oh my legs still work too, uh, still in a pretty bad spot here. And uh, I, you know, the timeline is blurry. I'm sure there's some some auditory exclusion that took place. Um, we returned fire. Had a, a platoon of tanks kind of in support of us come in and, and help us sort of eliminate um, the remainder of the enemy threat that was kind of in that location. Um, but while we were still taking fire, a couple of my marines hoisted me up under their their arms again and tossed me into the back of a, an amphibious assault vehicle and slammed the door shut. And I'm just sort of lying on my face, wondering where they're taking me. I got evac to a Humvee, um, where our, our uh, platoon medic essentially told me, Hey, you got to sit on your left butt cheek. That's where all the blood's coming out. And at that point, I, I think I probably went into shock because that's about where I start losing my memory of things.
0: Eventually you were taken to Germany, I believe. And did your family meet you there?
1: Yeah, that's right. My my parents, who have never <laughs> traveled internationally or owned a passport before, yeah, met me in Germany, and I, I wasn't conscious to greet them. Uh, but uh, as far as I understand, they were there.
0: And then eventually, you make your way to Bethesda, that's Maryland.
1: Right, yeah. Yep, Bethesda Naval Center. And uh, my parents actually even accompanied me on the the medevac flight from Germany to
0: Maryland. At which point in the timeline there did, you know, they have the conversation that this could be it, you know, you might not see your son again, or, you know, how close were you there? At that yeah,
1: I, I think I was really close. And I, I think, oh, this, <laughs> this is the hard part about my military service patties. I, I think it's far harder on my family than it ever was for me. You know, I, I was unconscious for all of this. And, uh, whether that was in shock or they had me sedated because of all the procedures that were doing to me. There's about a three week chunk of my life that I don't remember. And uh, I, I just can't imagine the the level of difficulty that my parents were facing with this one. At the time, uh, the casualty reporting system was still really in its infancy. And I think my parents weren't getting a very clear message as far as where I was, what my condition was like. They called anyone and everyone they could think of to include their congressmen, you know, folks they knew who were also in the military station in Germany that might be able to find out where I was. Eventually, they were able to talk to uh, who I believe was the attending physician when I was um, in Germany. And uh, the doctor essentially told them, hey, if this were my son, uh, I'd get here right away. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's, it's tough as a father for me to even think about my father and mother having to go through that you know, at at the time when they did. And I I think I I definitely wasn't out of the woods at that point. I think his implication to them was that I might not make it. Um, And, you know, obviously I'm sitting here talking to you today. um, And and so I did. And I I think probably after they were able to move me back to Bethesda, you know, maybe a a week or so in, two weeks in possibly, um, I was out of the woods. But again, that that part of the timeline is kind of, it's obscured for me. Uh, mainly because I wasn't, I wasn't conscious for it.
0: Yeah, obviously this is similar to what we were talking about earlier, making peace in real time. So I'm I'm sure my next question is something that you are thinking about in hindsight.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What did you learn about yourself during this time?
1: <laughs> oh man. Um, so interestingly, you know, I've already sort of expressed to you kind of the, a lot of the difficult feelings I had attached to my initial injury with my hands. It was a, a really difficult time because I felt largely responsible for, for a lot of the reasons that I was hurt. And then again, even more responsible for not not being there and not being sort of in that with you position um, with my Marines as they went to Iraq. And it, it's funny that, that that injury process and sort of even the being down in the dumps and sort of the, that mental depression that I had gone through being injured that first time, I think sort of primed me to attack my my rehabilitation for the second injury, and I, I learned during the second injury during this this injury that I, I received in combat that I, you know I, I wished previously when I had injured my hands that I'd been more resilient, and then this was my opportunity to demonstrate that I was more resilient, and um, this was. Uh, I mean, it's not even up for argument. This is a far more critical injury. I mean, my my life was at stake here with this injury, and I had to relearn how to walk. There are still some lasting medical effects that I'm dealing with today, but in large part, I think I deal with this injury much better than I did that initial injury, I think, because that initial injury sort of primed me for some of the resilience that, that was really required of me, not only to survive this next injury, but also to to really thrive in light of it. Um, if that makes any sense.
0: I think it does. And unfortunately we're going to have to start winding down here, but you just used the word resilient and I need to know what's your personal definition of resilience.
1: Yeah. So uh, I like to sort of talk about resilience in terms of the actual book definition. And I hate to do this because you always (laughs) hear people say, Oh, Webster's Dictionary defines resilience as, but truthfully, resilience and the concept of resilience is just an object returning to its normal shape after an insult. And that's that's really the book definition of resilience, is at least in, in my layperson's understanding of it. My definition of resilience, I think, is more in line of the concept of post-traumatic growth, um, which is you know a topic that that I've explored and really is close to my heart personally. And it's it's a topic that. You know, even though maybe I'm physically diminished after some of these injuries, um, there's so much that I've, I've learned from them and so much capacity that I've gained from them that the physical insult and the physical injury is only a small part of really my, my growth following these injuries and um, really my ability not only to look at life in a different way and, and with a different even level of appreciation, but hopefully also to mentor other people and um, to be a positive impact in the lives of others, to include my my family, my children, um, people that I know, and then yeah, maybe be an example for some other folks. Um, because everybody's got stuff. I mean, especially nowadays, everybody's got stuff, you know. And um, that's that's part of what resilience is, right? That's part of what you know, sort of the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps taught us. We we look at all these case studies, and we we learn all these things, and they're all you know a cultural point of reference for us. To say, oh, these are the great battles that Marines have fought in, in time gone by. Even like in the case of the podcast, I know you interviewed Justin Legg, and it's like, man. And and Justin's a friend of mine, a guy I graduated with, and it's like, oh, holy crap, I you know, my level of resilience holds nothing to that guy's. But you learn about these stories and then you realize, hey, I have those stories as well. And you realize everybody has those stories. And there's no such thing as, you know, a normal life. And I say that kind of in quotes because your normal life is just the life that you're living. And to be able to sustain, I guess, the kind of injury that I've had and to experience the kind of growth, hopefully, that I've experienced through them and to hopefully pass some of that growth along to other people is really kind of a gift um, that I feel like I've been given. And I think it's, it's a really good way of, of looking at life in general. And um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity not only to have served my country, but also to have been provided some of those, those post-traumatic growth opportunities.
0: I'm happy to have heard that perspective that you have because following your combat injury in Fallujah, the US Marines elected to medically retire you. Did you have any idea that you wanted to transition into the professional fire service then? How exactly did that come to fruition?
1: I don't think at the time I thought of the fire service as a, as a, a potential career. I, I knew that I was kind of, I, I feel like I had sort of fulfilled my role in the Marine Corps, especially considering my particular occupational specialty. Um, I think the, the higher up I would go, the less I would, I would serve in that capacity of really sort of being with the troops and sort of having that, that with you mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sort of, I saw my, my position as becoming more managerial and less hands-on, and it didn't appeal to me as much. And so I knew my time with the Marine Corps had sort of come to an end. As far as the fire service, I didn't I didn't consider it very seriously initially. Um, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. I tried my hand, you know, as a substitute teacher, which is a, a pretty difficult role, as any teacher will tell you, of trying to step in as as a sub. You know, a lot of the times you get high school age kids, and it's like, oh, subs here. <laughs> that's pretty much free license for us to do whatever the hell we want. But uh, it it didn't appeal to me as much as I thought it would on the face of things. I had a friend who. Um, worked for the Long Beach Fire Department here in California. And I think he saw me struggling a little bit and said, hey, why don't you come do a ride-along with me one day? We'll have you up at the station for 24 hours. And there was was never even a mention of a job offer or the fact that I would consider it as a career. It was just, on the face of things, uh, an opportunity to hang out. And, uh, I showed up at the station with those guys. And uh, again, you know, part of my French, I, I tend to curse like a sailor. I was like, holy shit, <laughs> these guys get to do this on a daily basis. This is what they, they get paid to do this. <laughs> and, uh, I, I was hooked. I was completely hooked. It was at a time when, um, you know, this was back before your resume was submitted online. You actually wrote your name down on a piece of paper and handed it in. And, uh, <laughs> as, as luck would have it, it was two days before the deadline to turn in applications, um, for the Long Beach fire department's hiring process. And those guys actually drove me in Long Beach fire engine three down to city hall. And I marched my way up to the office and threw that thing in the inbox and lo and behold, you know, as long as the hiring process took, you know, two years later, uh, I got a job, which was pretty miraculous considering.
0: That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, Nick, that's all the time we have for this episode. But before we end, I would like to invite you to come back on the podcast. I'm really so grateful that we're able to discuss your military service, but would like to speak with you again sometime and cover your career in the fire service, your philosophy on risk and safety in high risk settings, and some more about your personal life. How does that sound?
1: I would absolutely love to, Patty. Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Awesome.